So the fundamental nature of the human body is, one, complete unity. It's one body. And secondly, perfect diversity. See, the promise of the gospel is that whoever trusts in Christ alone has what? Everlasting life. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you open to Ephesians chapter three, Ephesians chapter three, we're gonna continue in this awesome, awesome letter. Ephesians 3 is a direct continuation of Ephesians 2, chapter 2. In the original Greek manuscript, there's really no chapter or verse headings anywhere. In Scripture, it was just one flow-through text. So really, the first 13 verses of chapter 3 are a direct continuation of the last half of chapter 2. In those verses, in the last half of chapter 2, remember we talked about last week, Paul reveals that God's plan for all believers in Jesus regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of religious background, regardless of nationality, the goal for the church of Jesus Christ was to be one, one in Christ. There's no divisions, there was no distinctions, there was no discrimination. All believers in Christ are exactly equal. They share the exact same spiritual inheritance. And back in the day, that was revolutionary. It's even revolutionary today. There has always been differences between people, right? I mean, you look around and you say, yeah, they're different. <laughs> usually that doesn't mean they're better. It usually means they're different from me and I'm better and they are not better, right? And those differences often create divisions and that usually leads to discord or can lead to discord and conflict. So last week we looked at one of those massive divisions in the body of Christ and it was the really, really, really big division between Jews and Gentiles. And they despised each other for generations and generations and generations. One of the great miracles of the ministry of Jesus Christ is that in Christ, these two groups who had despised each other for centuries were literally brought together as one. So let me give you a little context about this book and this particular chapter. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians when he was in prison. He was in house arrest in, in Rome. At this time, he'd been in the, in, in the judicial system in Rome for about five years. If you think the United States judicial system moves slowly, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Paul was arrested originally in Jerusalem about 57, and right now it's probably five, six years after that. He's still in house arrest, so his case has been dragging on and on and on. So if you get on jury duty, and you get out of there within a week, count your blessings, right? Nobody's excited about that statement, right? <laughs> so at any rate, Paul had, earlier in his ministry, had come to Jerusalem to bring an offering from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church. Now the church in Jerusalem, of course the original church, it had been under severe persecution 
by Rome for quite a number of years after Pentecost. And the members at that Jerusalem church were very poor. Many of them had lost their jobs. Many of them were unemployed. So Paul was concerned that this division, this hatred, this, this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, it needed to be resolved. And so he determined that the Gentile churches should raise an offering, a love offering, a monetary offering for the poor Jewish church who literally was unemployed, the vast majority of them. So he did that. He raised a significant offering from a number of Gentile Christian churches for the suffering Jewish church, and he was hoping that that would bond them together. And that happened. So at the in conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey, about 57 AD, 57 AD, Paul goes to Jerusalem. And when he was there, he was accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, into the temple grounds. Now, remember, last week we talked about this big division between Jew and Gentile. And we said, if you're a Gentile, you can only get so close to the temple because there was a court of the Gentiles that was on the perimeter of the temple grounds, the temple itself, and you could not go beyond that barrier. There was the, literally a wall that says Gentiles on this side, Jews on this side. And if Gentiles crossed the line, that was a capital crime. So if you were a Gentile, you didn't go into the Jewish temple, they literally would execute you. Well, Paul had been accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish area of the temple, and it turned into a significant riot. Uh, he was mobbed, he was beaten, the Jewish crowd was trying to kill him, and the Roman garrison that was stationed right there rescued him in Acts 21. He then asked the Roman centurion if he could give his testimony to the crowd and speak to the Jewish crowd. So in Acts 21, he does. He speaks to the crowd in Hebrew, and he literally gives his testimony. He talks to them about how Christ met him on the Damascus Road, how he was a persecutor of the church, how he'd been trying to kill Christians, and Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus and changed his life. And they listened to him until he said, God commissioned me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then they went nuts. I mean, it says they rioted, they tore their clothes, they threw dust in the air. I mean, it, it was out of control. And the Roman garrison literally took him into custody, brought him into the, into the fortress for his own protection. At that point in time, there was a group of about 40 Jewish, I won't call them insurrectionists, I would just say Jewish patriots, uh, who formed a plot to kill Paul. And they said, we're not going to eat or drink until we've killed him. Now, you know, you got to get that done within 72 hours, because if you don't drink in 72 hours, you're going to die, right? So they had a kind of a window here. Well, the Lord arranged for Paul to hear about it. And so Paul said, if I get tried in Jerusalem, I'm going to be murdered before I get to trial. And that was probably very, very true at that point in time, because the Jewish authorities had brought some pretty frivolous charges against him. You know, they accused him of being a pest. Well, you know, going to a trial for being a pest, I guess everybody could be charged with that at some point in time. But the real issue is they hated Paul because he took the gospel to the Gentiles and the, this Jewish group hated the Gentiles at that point in time. So Paul appealed to Caesar. He said, I'm not going to get tried in Jerusalem. If I'm tried in Jerusalem, I'll be ex-murdered before I get to trial. I appeal to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. The Jewish authorities had to say, okay, Caesar's uh, in charge. 
So we're going to ship you to Rome. So Paul has now been in Rome for about five years, off and on, waiting trial. He's under house arrest. So at the time he's in prison, that's when he wrote the book of Ephesians. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, all of this I've mentioned, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. We'll stop right there. So Paul was in prison ultimately because he had preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And some of Paul's opponents were trying to discredit him. And they were saying stuff like, if Paul, if you're really an apostle of Jesus Christ, then why are you suffering? Why are you in prison? That sounds familiar today, right? If you're, if you're following Jesus, your life should be working. If you're following Jesus, health and wealth should follow you wherever you go. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's it working for you? Right? Obviously, following Jesus does not mean everything is going to be peachy keen, hunky-dory, no problems. That is not the case. You have divine, supernatural, indwelling Holy Spirit to guide and direct you and empower you, but it doesn't mean your problems are going to go away in this life. But Paul had a different frame of reference. Paul's imprisonment was not an accident. Paul was imprisoned by divine design. God had arranged for Paul to go to prison. And you say, uh, why would God do that? So Paul's in custody. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. They change shifts every four hours. So he's got six shifts of soldiers chained to him every 24 hours. So he's got a captive audience. Because we find out within a few months, most of the Praetorian Guard have been converted to Christianity because they're chained to Paul. And what are you going to do? He's going to tell you about Jesus, right? And you can't get away from him. <laughs> so God arranged, number one, for the Praetorian Guard, many of them to come to Christ. Number two, while Paul was in prison, he wrote the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written in prison. Now, I don't know. I think Paul was kind of a active person, maybe a little OCD, I suspect that God sat him down and arranged for him to not be able to go anywhere so he could write what God wanted him to say. So the application for us is pretty simple. Sometimes you're in circumstances you don't comprehend why God's doing what he's doing, but he has you there for eternal reasons and eternal purposes. And instead of trying to get out of those circumstances, maybe we say, Lord, here's where I am. So what is it you want me to do in these circumstances? You obviously arranged them. And you say, well, that's kind of strange. God arranged Paul to go to prison. Yeah? Well, he's arranged you for being in your marriage. He's arranged you for being in your employment. He's arranged you to have the children and the grandchildren you have. He's arranged you to have the health you have, right? All of that is by divine design. So Paul says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. Who does he say he's a prisoner of? I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, which means Paul said there's not one area of my life that's not under the control of Jesus Christ. And if Christ chooses to put me in prison for the sake of the gospel, I'm okay with it. That's an attitude. See, God's purpose for us is to shape us like Jesus and then work through us to save others. Serving Jesus always involves sacrifice, right? But the rewards are infinitely worthwhile. I mean, we know that accomplishing anything worthwhile has a cost, right? If you want to get in shape, is there a cost? 
say yes. You know, the television ads that say you can get in shape and there's no sweat. If you're going to get in shape, the price tag is sweat, right? If you want to advance your career or your student activity, academic career, you pay the price and study in hard work. Most of you love your children and grandchildren, at least I think you do. And if they call, you will adjust your schedule for them, won't you? Of course you will. You will even adjust your pocketbook for them. Uh-huh. Why? Because you love them, because we love them, because it is worth it. So if Jesus loved me enough to lay down his life for me, Paul says, and we should say, should I not be willing to lay down my plans or my priorities or my schedule for the salvation of others? By the way, if you didn't hear the sermon this morning, go to 11 o'clock. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul is beginning to pray for the Ephesian believers. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now he's going to begin a prayer. And beginning in verse 2, he breaks his thought. And he's going to reemphasize the truths he just introduced in chapter 2. So in the Greek text, chapter 3, verses 2 through 13, where we are today, 2 through 13 is one sentence. No periods, no commas. In the Greek, when Paul got on a roll, he was on a roll, right? So one sentence and chapter 3, verse 2 to 13 is a parenthetical clause. It's a sidebar. Because if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, jump down to verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. That's where he picks up the thought again. So he, verse 1 is intimately connected with verse 14. Verses 2 through 13 is a sidebar conversation. All one sense. So we're going to be spending time in that sidebar today. And he's going to tell them more details about this new entity called the church that he had just introduced in verse 2. So let's go to verse 2 of chapter 3. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Here's the principle. We are not only saved by God's grace, we are stewards of God's grace. It's a privilege to serve Jesus so others can be saved. Let's repeat that. We are not only saved by God's grace, we are stewards of God's grace. It's a privilege to serve Jesus so others can be saved. So Paul says, look, I'm a, I'm a steward of God's grace. And stewardship here means a manager. The Greek is, is dispensation. We would say you're an administrator. You're, you manage this. Now, a steward or a manager doesn't own anything, right? A steward manages for somebody else. Back in the day of Paul, a steward would would uh, have other servants. They would, they would can be kind of like the CFO. They would run the finances for the owner. They would run the operations. It's kind of like a COO, a chief operating officer and a chief financial officer. They kind of ran the whole operations. They didn't own anything, but they managed it for the benefit of somebody else who was the owner. So Paul says, look, God has entrusted me with the gospel. I don't own this. I'm supposed to manage this for the benefit 
of the Gentiles. My stewardship, my managership, my responsibility is to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul says, I didn't choose this. I didn't volunteer for this even. God appointed me. God anointed me with everything that I would need to complete this task. And it's still true today. When God calls you to serve him, he gives you everything you need to get the job done. And I know sometimes we look in the mirror and we go, God, you have no clue what you're doing because I have no capacity to do this. And the Lord says, this is news. <laughs> you never did have any capacity. By the way, I'm not counting on your capacity. God never counts on our ability to do anything. He counts on his ability in and through us to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. That's good news for us because the only thing we bring to the table is availability. None of us bring ability, we bring availability. We say, here am I, send me. And the Lord in his infinite power through the Holy Spirit gives us what we need to accomplish his purposes. Because the gospel is a supernatural work. You can't talk anybody into the gospel. Somebody else going to talk him out of it. Pastor Roger said that a hundred times at this point in time. The gospel is a supernatural work that only the Holy Spirit can do. You and I are just the messengers. We just carry the message. The Lord does the work. Paul says, God's grace was given to me for you. It's never about us. See, we're the objects of God's grace, but we're not the origin of God's grace. God gifts us with the spiritual gifts, with salvation, for what purpose? So that we can pass it on. So that we can be a blessing to others. He blesses us not so we can hoard the blessing. He blesses us so that we can share the blessing with other people. For those of you who've been in Israel or have seen a map of Israel, there's two major bodies of water in Israel we talk about. One is the Sea of Galilee up in the north, and one is way down in the south called the Dead Sea. And you know something? They both are fed by the same river, the Jordan River. But there is a massive difference between the two. The Sea of Galilee has been a major fishing site for probably 6,000 years. I mean, it's a major fishing site. How much fish did they take out of the Dead Sea? Zero. It's the same water. The Jordan River comes down from Mount Hermon, flows in and out of the Sea of Galilee, flows into the Dead Sea. How come one body of water supports a lot of life and the other one's dead or nervous? Why is that true? Because the Sea of Galilee takes in water and gives out. The Dead Sea only takes in. This is why hoarders are lifeless. There's no life. All they do is take, 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 right? That body of water is constipated. It, no water goes out, right? It's all the Sea of Galilee. You know what you're like when that happens. You're miserable. <laughs> Maybe that's why none of you are smiling this morning. Okay. Don't take this, Austin. <laughs> Be like the Sea of Galilee. Take in and give out. God has blessed us. Be a blessing. Don't be like the Dead Sea. Take in, take in, don't give out. Nothing lives in that but brine shrimp, and they're pretty small, right? So Paul says, look, the grace of God was given to me to share. And by the way, I didn't figure that out. It was revealed to me. This mystery was revealed to me. By the way, that which is revealed means you can't research it. 
It's not understood by, by research. It's understood by revelation. It's disclosed by God. You can't discover it by man. Revelation comes from the Lord, and if he doesn't reveal it, we can't know it. So it's interesting. This word mystery is repeated several times in just this little four or five verse passage. He uses the word the mystery, and you say, you know, when Scripture repeats something, that's a clue that it's kind of important. And if it repeats it two or three times, that means it's really important. So the mystery here is not a puzzle. This is not a jigsaw puzzle that you can solve. This is not a detective story. You know, you give me enough clues, I can figure it out. When we think of mystery, Agatha Christie, it usually implies there's knowledge that's withheld that I can discover. In the biblical sense, the word mystery means there's truth that has not yet been revealed but God is going to pull the curtains back on the stage and he's going to show you what he wants to show you when he wants to show you. So biblical mystery is always up to God to reveal it, not for us to discover it. It's a divine secret in the sense that only God knew it until God chooses to reveal it. A mystery in the Bible is not a math problem. You know, give me enough data and I can, I can work it out. A mystery in the Bible is like being blind and God opens your eyes and you can see, right? Now, real practically, let me give you an application. How many of you have ever read anything in the Bible and said, I do not understand that? I, that, I, that is so over my head. I mean, that's a mystery. I don't even know where to begin. Here's what you do. You write it down. The verse, the words. I don't understand this. And you pray. You say, Lord, open my eyes. Lord, reveal to me what this is, what this truth is. Write it down in your Bible. Come back in six months, three months, one month, one year, whatever. You will read that and you will go, wow. So that's what it means. You will not even remember your confusion. It will be so blindingly obvious. When the Lord opens your eyes to the truth in his word, you go, duh. It's so obvious. But before the Lord opens your eyes up, you go, whoa, I don't understand it. So now it's a woda. Whoa, duh, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He opens your eyes so it's obvious, right? Try it. Write it down. Try it. So the Bible's this treasure chest. And when you can't find your way and you need to find your way, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and he will do it. So what exactly is this mystery? Verse 6. Paul says to be specific. I like that. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's the principle. The church is the community of all true believers who are united with Christ and with each other. The church is the community of all true believers who are united with Christ and with each other. So it's not a mystery that God had always planned to save people from their sins and establish the kingdom of God on earth. You know, in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God says, I'm bringing a promised Messiah 
that's gonna destroy Satan who had deceived the human race into rebellion against God. A few chapters later in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing. Matter of fact, through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that's a pretty big promise. The entire planet is gonna be blessed through your family. Of course, that came through through Jesus Christ who was born of the family of Abraham. A few chapters later in that, a few books, he tells David, Messiah's coming through your family tree. So God created the nation of Israel as his instrument through which he would bless the world. By the way, Old Testament, New Testament, the only way you ever came to God was the same way, through faith. Through faith, the just shall live by faith. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, people have always been saved the same way, through faith. However, the Jews were the instrument of that faith, that the way the faith was communicated to the world. So God said to the Jewish nation, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you my law. I'm gonna give you my sacraments. I'm gonna reveal myself to you. And you are gonna be the lens through which the world will see me. So you need to reflect me accurately so the rest of the world, the Gentiles who come through the nation of Israel will know me by how you behave. And there were times when you read the Old Testament, there were times Israel behaved in honorable, holy ways and the nations around them saw the glory of God and were attracted to Almighty God. And there were many times that they failed to do that and the nations surrounding them did not get an accurate picture of God. But at any rate, God's mechanism has always been, you come to me through faith. In the Old Testament, the Jews were the instrument by which that faith was communicated. So the Jews believed that in order for the Gentiles to come to God, they first had to become Jews. You had to be circumcised, you had to obey the Mosaic law because that was God's command in the Old Testament, right? The divine mystery was that after Jesus came, God was now calling out a people for himself to be the body and bride of his son and this was a brand new entity. And it consisted of anyone who placed their faith in Christ. Anyone. Jesus had spoken, by the way, before this, of, of incorporating both Jews and Gentiles into one body, one family. In John 10, 16, he's telling the disciples, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. In other words, not of the Jewish faith. And I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And we would, they will become one flock with one shepherd. So Jesus had said, I have other sheep. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about the world coming to faith in Christ and he was gonna make them into one new body. So the Holy Spirit now tells Paul, there's gonna be three parts of this mystery. Number one, the Jews are, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So in the church, being a Jew, a Gentile, is neither an asset or a liability. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Matter of fact, if you're male, female, if you're bond free, if you're rich, poor, if you're 1%, 90%, if you're able-bodied, handicapped, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. It's meaningless. There are no distinctions in the body of Christ. All of God's children are adopted, 100%. None of you were born righteous. We were all born in sin. When we receive Christ as Savior, we were adopted in the family of God. Every single one of us are adopted. Nobody gets special treatment. Everybody gets the same treatment. 
Both Jews and Gentiles, bond free, male, female, rich, poor, whatever it is, old, young, you're completely equal heirs of God's blessing. He gifts all his children the exact same blessing. We all have been granted an equal inheritance in heaven. There's no seats that are better than other seats, right? Our inheritance is eternal life. This is eternal life that they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So our inheritance is life together forever with God and God's people. That's pretty good. That's our inheritance. That's what we're looking forward to. We didn't earn it and we can't lose it because eternal life is not from us. It's from Christ. It's the gift of God. Secondly, Gentiles are fellow members of the body. Now, this body of Christ is called the church. In Greek, the word church is ecclesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ecclesia. It means the called out ones. The ones who are called out. Called out of what? Called out of darkness into his light. Called out of sin into righteousness. Called out of death into life. Called out of the world, right? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. The church was born on Pentecost when God the Holy Spirit took up residence in all believers. That's the birth of the church. And from that time forward, the Holy Spirit permanently lives in every single believer and comes to live in every single believer at the moment of salvation. Every single one of you have God living in you right now. So when you look at somebody, you need to see the Holy Spirit of God in them. And when you treat them badly, who are you treating badly? Mm, that's kind of interesting. God, the Holy Spirit lives in them. If we really believe that, we would treat people radically different than what we do. When you make a face at them, you're making a face at God because he sees, right? Kind of interesting. Every single person, believer in Christ, has God, the Holy Spirit, living in them and in you. Now, in the Bible, the church is described with many, many metaphors. The church is, the Bible describes that, the church as a family. So the church is a family. God is our family, and we are brothers and sisters. We are his children. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. The Bible describes the church as a bride. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride and we have that intimate relationship with Jesus like a bride and a bridegroom. The church is described as branches on a vine. So we're connected to the vine as branches and our job is to bear fruit. And the only way we bear fruit is we stay connected with the vine. If you clip a branch off a vine, it dries up and the fruit goes away, turns to raisins, right? There's no more life. So the only way we retain life is stay connected with Jesus like branches on a vine. The church is described as God's house or God's building. Jesus is building his church and you and I are all stones in the wall and the roof of the foundation and all those things. But the one that Paul uses here is he says the church is the body of Christ. So Jesus is the head, he's in charge of the church, and you and I are all members of the body. So he uses the human body as a metaphor, the physical body. 1 Corinthians 12 says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He's talking about the church being like a human body. Verse 13, 
For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So the fundamental nature of the human body is, one, complete unity. It's one body. And secondly, perfect diversity. So we have complete unity and perfect diversity. Being connected with Jesus means we're intimately connected with each other. You cannot be connected with Jesus and not connected with his body. How can you say the hand belongs to the body, but it's not connected with the body? Something's wrong with that picture. So God created us all different. We have different ethnicity. We have different racial backgrounds, social backgrounds, sexual backgrounds, mental backgrounds. But in God's family, those differences don't mean a different status. God loves diversity. Look around. There's nobody like you. And I can see the people around you go, well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> God loves diversity. He built a lot of differences, a lot of diversity, but God is also the author, author of unity. So all members of the body are equally important and equally necessary. Ears, eyes, nose, mouth, hands, feet. Have you ever noticed there's no surplus parts in the body? There's no spare parts in the body. You know, I got a flat tire, I got an extra one back here, let's just put it on. There are no spare parts in the body. Every single part of the human body has necessary function. And it was designed to keep the entire body healthy and whole. And every part of the body depends on every other part of the body. You know, most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about the bottoms of our feet until you step in a sticker. Then when your foot hurts, what happens? The whole body thinks about that which hurts. You cut your finger, all of a sudden the finger is the whole thing, right? Because the whole body's thinking about this finger. Or if you have a sinus infection, it takes over everything. So every part of the body depends on every part of the body. You know, speaking about body parts, have you ever thought about earwax? Just, just a thought. Oh, nose wax could be the same thing, but it's, it's not very glamorous, right? But it's really, really important. Ear wax protects the inside of the ear canal. It guards against bacteria, fungi, really small insects, and water. For those of you that like to swim or get in the shower, if you don't have ear wax, you're going to have ear infections routinely. Ear wax protects. You know, I never really thought about earwax being kind of an important part. How many of you think the human liver is a really a work of art? Most of us don't see pictures of livers on walls, but we see lots of pictures of faces on walls. The face gets a lot of attention. The liver, the liver should be really depressed. I mean, it's ignored most of the time. I mean, you know, think about it. But if your liver stops filtering blood, we can put how long you're gonna be with us on the calendar. It's not long. So there's no member of the human body that's not important and not necessary. And that Paul uses as a metaphor saying, every single member of you that are a member of the body of Christ are vital, necessary, very important, and treasured by God. Third, 
Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. After Christ came, the Gentiles don't need to come to God through the Jews, through keeping the law and observing the ceremonies. Every single one of us has a direct relationship with God the Father through faith in Christ. See, the promise of the gospel is that whoever trusts in Christ alone has what? Everlasting life, not based on law keeping, but based on faith. We say, for God so loved the world is how many? Everyone that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. See, no one group or no one person is more saved than another. Either you are or you aren't, and it, your background is irrelevant. God is no respecter of persons. Verse 7. The gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Here's the principle. God's grace works powerfully through people who make much of him and little of themselves. You should probably capitalize that word him because we're talking about God. God's grace works powerfully through people who make much of him and little of themselves. Paul said, I was made a minister. I didn't volunteer, I was drafted. God blinded Paul on the road to Damascus, knocked him off the horse and told him, get up and go to Damascus and there it will be told you what it's been appointed for you to do. Who's in charge? Not Paul, God. God called Paul to be a minister. Of course, a minister just means a servant. And by the way, a servant is not a big deal. A servant is somebody who waits on tables. He's talking about a table waiter here. The most important thing about a servant is a servant takes orders from their master. Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. I take orders. I, do, I work for the benefit of others. I don't serve myself. And God didn't call Paul because he thought Paul was worthy, but God called Paul because God's gracious. God's supernatural power, by the way, works through humble people. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul says, I was chosen by God, not because I'm anything, but because he's everything. As a matter of fact, he says, I was the very least of all the saints. Literally, the, the Greek is the leaster, the least worthy, less than the least. Interesting. The name Paul or Paulus in Latin means little. His very name means little or small. Tradition tells us that Paul was a short guy, short stature. However, the power of God does not depend on the size of the package because none of us are worthy of God's grace. None of us are worthy of God's grace. It's interesting that the more clearly we see the holiness of God, the more we become aware of the sinfulness in our own hearts. We must never forget what God saved us from. See, most, some of us look in the mirror and go, wow, aren't I something? Remember where you came from. Remember what God saved you from. Sin, Satan, self. But we're not just saved from that. We're saved to be stewards of that in that he's entrusted us to tell others how they can experience the grace of God as well. So Paul, God, Paul says, God called me to proclaim the unfathomable riches of a relationship within Christ. And of course, the unfathomable riches is all the truth there is about Christ. And this word unfathomable literally means in, infinite depth. 
infinite depth. You can never get to the bottom of it. Um, on planet Earth, the Challenger Deep is the deepest spot in the Mariana Trench. It's the deepest known ocean trench on planet Earth. This trench, which is near the Mariana Islands, it's, it's a crescent-shaped trench. It's 1,580 miles long and is 43 miles wide. It's a pretty big gash in planet Earth's crust. It's 36,070 feet deep, right? You could put Mount Everest in this trench and it'd be covered by 1.2 miles of water. And we get down to there, the water pressure at the bottom of that trench is 15,750 pounds per square inch. It's about 1,000 times the pressure at the surface. It's incomprehensible. It's almost unfathomable. These are very, very big numbers. And yet the riches of having a relationship with Jesus Christ is infinitely unfathomable. See, we think we know. We say, well, I've been saved. I know Jesus. You do. How much of him do you know? Not nearly as much as we think because he is God. He is infinite. We will spend all eternity getting to know him better and better and better. Paul in Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. See, we must never trust human comprehension more than God's revelation. We really know so little. The Bible tells us true truth. By the way, when you read the Bible, it's absolutely and utterly true. But it never tells you exhaustive truth. The Bible does not tell you everything about God. He's infinite. You're not going to be able to comprehend it. What he tells you about himself is absolutely accurate. You can bank your eternal future on it, but it's not exhaustive. We use our three-pound brain. Actually, for some of you, it might be three and a half pounds. And we tell God how to run his universe, don't we? Yeah, we do. We say, God, I'd like you to do this. That's like a bacteria lecturing an archangel on how to fly, and the bacteria doesn't even have a brain, let alone wings. So God is infinite, and we know true truth about him, but we do not know exhaustive truth. Paul says his ways are past tracing out. We'll spend all our life on earth and all of eternity exploring the infinite riches of Jesus Christ. And that is part of our passion going forward. Whatever your need is, whatever our need is, you know what the solution is? Jesus. When you're two years old and you fell down and hurt yourself, the solution was not a Band-Aid. The solution was mom and dad, right? When you fell down at two years old, what'd you say? Mom, dad, that's the solution. Whatever we're facing, God is the solution. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He's our heavenly father. So God says, Paul, I'm using you to take the gospel of the Gentiles and, verse 9, to bring to light what the administration of the mystery, which for the ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now that's a mouthful. Here's the principle. The church on earth displays the wisdom of God so that the angels in heaven will glorify God with greater understanding. 
The church on earth displays the wisdom of God so that the angels in heaven will glorify God with greater understanding. Paul's discussing the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. By the way, the church is not an afterthought. God didn't, the church is not a plan B. From eternity past, God had always planned to redeem his people in order to live in them and through them. This truth that God was going to have his own family and live in and through them was not hidden in the Bible where it could be discovered. It was hidden in God himself and it was gonna remain unknown until he revealed it. Even the angels knew nothing about the church. It was unknown to them. It was unknown in heaven as well as on earth. By the way, if you really wanna know what's important on earth, I've got a clue for you. Take a look and see what God is doing. Take a look and see where God is working and it'll reveal to you where God's priorities are so we can align ourselves with him. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He does that because he, in Ephesians 5, loved his church and gave up himself up for her. So he loves his church's bride he bought her with his blood and now he's building her up. You want to know what Jesus Christ is working at today? Building his church. So if that's important to him, should that be important to us? Of course. Unfortunately, many, many churches view the church as optional. Many, many Christians view the church as optional. You know, I go when it's, when it's convenient. That's a mistake. Because the church, you reveal the wisdom of God not just on earth, in heaven. It says the manifold wisdom of God. That means the many faceted, many colored, very colored, many sided wisdom of God. So the church is really kind of a tapestry. It's made up of many varied shapes and sizes and colors and textures and thread counts and all this other stuff. The church is a multinational, multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual, the church consists of people in Revelation 7 tells us for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language group, every people group on the planet. There is no human institution on earth that's as diverse as the church. And there's no human institution on earth that's as unified as the church. It is a unique institution on planet earth because it's supernatural. Matter of fact, it says the angels are amazed when they observe how God takes different people and makes them into one body. Paul says, they might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So the church is an audiovisual record of God's work on earth in reconciling people to himself and reconciling people to each other. The church is a real-time documentary of God's grace for everyone to see, not just on earth, but in heaven. See, God uses redeemed people in his church to reveal his wisdom, not just to people on earth, but to the angels in heaven who are watching. And that includes good angels, obviously, and bad angels as well. John MacArthur says, God is the teacher. The universe is the classroom. Angels are the students. The church is the illustration. And the lesson is wisdom. Got that? God is the teacher. The universe is the classroom, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the lesson is wisdom. And you ask the obvious question, 
Why is it important that the angels understand more and more and more of God's wisdom? So they can praise him with greater and greater understanding. That's the whole point. Colossians 1.16. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So the function of the creation is to praise the creator. That's the only reason the creation exists, is for the pleasure of the creator. Revelation 4.11. This is the praise of worship of heaven. Worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, the KJV says, your pleasure, they exist and were created. The only reason we exist is for the pleasure of God. And we go, you mean it's not all about me? You mean the whole universe doesn't rotate about me? Sorry, it doesn't. It rotates around him. So you say, well, how is God teaching the angels objects lessons about his character, his wisdom, his grace, and his mercy? He's revealing his great love by which he sent Jesus to save us from our sins. 1 Peter 1 tells us that angels do not understand the gospel. Angels do not understand why God sent his son to save you and me. Do you know why they don't understand that? Because they don't understand why anybody would not obey God. In heaven, everybody obeys God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, everyone obeys God. On earth, some people do, some people don't. The angels don't understand grace because they don't understand disobedience. Everybody in heaven obeys. So they look at you and they go and they go, why would you not obey God? I mean, isn't that kind of natural that you would obey your creator? The angels see God's power in his creation, but they see his mercy, his love, his grace when Jesus Christ laid down his life for sinners. The one of the most exciting things about this to me is that angels can learn. Angels are learning in heaven about the wisdom of God. You know what also it says? You and I will learn in heaven for all eternity. We will grow in greater and greater understanding of the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God throughout all eternity. Now, the application is pretty simple. Angels are watching you now. And how you behave reflects the wisdom of God or distorts the wisdom of God. The world is watching you and I now. And how we behave either reflects the wisdom of God or distorts the wisdom of God. I read one pastor who told his congregation, if you can't behave for yourself, for heaven's sakes, behave for the angels. They're watching. I thought, well, that's interesting. See, when someone sins, God is dishonored and the whole body suffers. But when we obey God and we do what is right, God is honored and the whole body benefits. Does that make sense? So what we do on earth is intimately connected with our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. One last thought, verse 11 through 13. Paul says, all of this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. 
Here's the principle. Since we have direct access to the God who controls all things, we should be encouraged. Since we have direct access to the God who controls all things, we should be encouraged. Everything in the universe serves God's purposes, which means there's no accidents in God's kingdom. God will never look at you this week and go, oops, I didn't see that coming. God sees everything coming. He's already arranged for it. God created us because he wants a relationship with us and he's proposed from eternity past to call out a people for himself to be united with him because he wants a relationship with us. And Paul says, we have a loving heavenly father that we have access to and our access to God is through prayer. Here's a great little story we're gonna end this with before we do our prayer and praise. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great pastors in the 19th century, used this illustration. He says, prayer is the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. How many have been in the church with bells, right? Been in the church with bells, bell tower? And the old ones were not automated. They had ropes. There was ropes hooked to every bell. And when you pull the rope, the bell rang. The harder you pull the rope, the louder the bell rang. So Spurgeon says, prayer is pulling the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Here's the problem. He said, many people scarcely pull the rope. Their prayers are so lazy. He says, others only give an occasional jerk at the rope. But if you want to communicate with heaven, grab the rope boldly and pull continuously with all your might. So we're going to go over prayer and praises here today. And we're going to bring them before our loving Heavenly Father with whom we have access. Here's my challenge. Grab on heaven's rope and pull that sucker. And don't stop pulling it. You have brothers and sisters that have prayer requests and needs in this group. How many times should you pray? You don't pray once. You pray once a day. Pray once an hour. Keep pulling on heaven's rope so that the bell rings in heaven. By the way, heaven should know your name because you're the one who always bothers them with your bell ringing. <laughs> Jesus said that. He said, you got a friend and they knock on your door at 3 a.m. and they want something. He said, you won't get out of bed because they're your friend, but if they knock long enough, you'll get up. Just because you're tired, right? Keep pulling on heaven's rope. Okay, let's review before Marty comes up. Number one, we are not only saved by God's grace, we are stewards of God's grace. It's a privilege to serve Jesus so that others can be saved. Number two, the church is the community of all true believers who are united with Christ and with each other. Number three, God's grace works powerfully through people who make much of him and little of themselves. Number four, the church on earth displays the wisdom of God so that the angels in heaven will glorify God with greater understanding. And by the way, so that your friends down here will know who God is. Number five, since we have direct access to God who controls all things, we should be encouraged. So this week, pull on the rope. I love you. Now that you know. 
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.